Something old, something new, something borrowed, Death Eater coup. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for newlyweds. Graceful and gleaming, the links landed lightly in the middle of the astonished dancers. Heads turned as those nearest it froze absurdly in mid-dance. Then the Patronus's mouth opened wide, and it spoke in the loud, deep, slow voice of Kingsley Shacklebolt. The Ministry has fallen. Scrimger is dead. They are coming. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. I don't know what to say next. I don't know. Did you think Should that was funny? Should we do any banter? <laughs> <laughs> we don't actually plug a ton of banter into the beginning of these episodes. I know. I always feel like I should be saying something other than just the chapters, but we get right down Dude, to we it. We dive into Harry Potter. None you of this. Nobody gives a fuck about what's going on in our lives. You don't they want to know listen to us just chatter and chatter. What's up in Harry's life? What are we? We went on an urban hike yesterday. That was nice. True. Whenever you go urban hiking, we went to Inwood Park. Whenever you go urban hiking in New York City, it's sort of like you've entered through some kind of magical portal. So that's Harry Potter related, kind of. Does it feel like that to you? I mean, a little bit. It feels like you're in a different city, which is nice. I don't know. We don't need to put banter in the beginning of this Okay, episodes. no banter. No banter. This week, we are reading the chapters called The Will of Albus Dumbledore and The Wedding. In this podcast, you will hear spoilers and cursing. Actually, you will probably hear minimal spoilers because something that you all have discovered in the last couple of episodes is that we don't remember what the fuck happens in this book. Yeah, I know some shit gets up with like a goblin later on. They Uh, go camping. There's a dragon. I think Harry wins. But the details are hazy at best as you have all piled on to remind us when we said we don't remember whether Mad-Eye Moody's eye returns. Spoiler alert, Mad-Eye Moody's eye returns. So limited spoilers for this last installment of Harry Potter because who knows what happens in this book. You will also hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are the wedding industrial complex, pickup artists, escrow, 16 going on 17, and gatecrashers. So Alex, tell us. What happens this week? In this week's chapters, Hedwig is still dead. God um, damn it, Alex. <laughs> General Francisco Franco is still dead. Um, what is that from? Saturday Night Live. I don't know that sketch. Well, it's like really old Saturday Night Live. It was before my time too, but you know. Anyway, Harry dreams that he's walking along a mountain road overlooking a small town. He's looking for someone. When he wakes up, Ron tells him that he's been shouting the name Gregorovich. Harry feels like he's heard the name Gregorovich before, but he doesn't really know in what context. He feels like it has something to do with Quidditch. Ron says it might be this other guy whose name sort of sounds like Gregorovich, who uh, was like really shitty at Quidditch. He was like, he like had the most quaffle drops or something like that. Gregorovich? I don't remember the other, like, fake Grigorovich, but, uh... Wow, this detail is unimportant. Really unimportant. Harry realizes that he's bu bu motherfucking 17 years old, which means the trace is broken. He can use magic whenever he wants. He instantly tries summoning his glasses, which hit him in the face. So, six years of magical schooling, and Harry still kind of fucking sucks at magic. Ron gives him a gift. It is a book 
which is very out of character for Ron. The book is called 12 Failsafe Ways to Charm Witches. Ron says it's really helped him uh, with his skills with the ladies. Cool, I guess. I don't know. We will talk about this later. Harry also gets a watch from Molly that belonged to her brother Fabian. It is a tradition to give a wizard a watch on their 17th birthday. I guess as a reminder of their mortality or something. <laughs> you know, the hours of your life are ticking away. Harry also gets an enchanted razor from Bill and Fleur, which Fleur says will give you the closest shave ever, but frankly to me it sounds fucking horrifying. She's like, be careful. It might take a little more hair off than you want. Uh, also, it might slit your throat. Doesn't this seem like a Final Destination like tool? This is tool? some Demon Barber of Fleet Street shit. Yeah, like for what sure. the fuck? If you like fucked with someone's enchanted razor, th this is a murder device Absolutely. or an accidental death. Like, what if your what if the charm wears off in your enchanted razor? You would die. Yeah, it would slit your razor throat. You should not be allowed to enchant sharp-edged objects. Just straight up. Harry also gets a new sneak a <laughs> I can't say sneak a scope. <laughs> Harry also gets a new sneak o scope from Hermione, plus a bunch of Weasley's Wizard Wheezes merch. I finally looked up the word, like why it's called Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. I didn't realize a wheeze was like a joke or a gag in like you didn't? British. No, I had no idea. Oh, that must have been really confusing. I know for that's you. like st I figured it must have something to do with that. I just thought for a long time I thought it was a silly name. Oh no, but it's no. like a gag. A wheeze is a gag. I feel like a sneakoscope is virtually useless when Voldemort is after Harry. He no, knows enemies are afoot. It's if someone is like untrustworthy very nearby. Okay, I mean everyone's untrustworthy. Everyone's kind of shady. Yeah. I don't know why it took me so long to figure out the provident, like, the meaning of Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. I mean, context clues, but I feel silly for not knowing that. Ginny invites Harry to her room. She says she couldn't think of what to get him for his birthday, so she figured she'd just give him something to remember her by, which is a big ol' smooch, but, like, the most intense smooch ever. They start kissing like they've, quote, never kissed before, so fill in the blanks about what that means. They're kissing is what that means. They're making out. They're just making out? They're just making it? out. Yes, I do think okay. that's it. No Percy and Penelope Clearwater shenanigans no. going on here? No shenanigans. It lasts for all of 10 seconds and also. And then fucking Ron bursts in and like, whatever. Fucking Ron. What a, what a buzzkill. Ron later angrily accuses Harry of messing with Ginny's head. He says, didn't you break it off? You're just going to get her hopes up. Harry says, it won't happen again. And then Harry imagines Ginny's life without him, and it's very sad. You can picture her in a wedding dress, marrying some fucking stranger. Harry has a Quidditch-themed birthday party, which, frankly, he seems a little bit old for. There's, like, a big Quidditch cake. Like, it's not Quidditch-themed. It's not, like, Quidditch decorations. They just have a snitch cake. Yeah, I guess that's cool. But it's, like, I don't know. If you're 17, you have a big football for a cake. Like That sounds awesome. Yeah, I guess that's pretty dope. I, I mean, a, I don't like footballs, but... I had a basketball-shaped birthday cake once, but I was also, like, 11. <laughs> it was really cool. They had... It was, like... I guarantee you, if you had a basketball-shaped birthday cake this year, you would have thought it was really cool. Yeah, that's pretty true. Okay, fair enough. Uh, George also has a giant hole in his head, even though his wound has mostly been cleaned up. Yeah, they don't put a 
bandage or anything over it. They just stare in at his brains. You, <laughs> like, you can't see straight through to the brains what if you're missing could, an ear. No, what would you see? Tell me what you would see I, if somebody had blasted your ear off and there was just a hole where your I, ear I mean, was. People, no, you would see your fucking brains. No, you wouldn't. There are people out there who don't have an ear. I know, but... You've probably seen someone without an ear in your life. But they describe it... I mean, yeah, but that there's flesh there, not just a hole. Yeah, I don't know. They describe it as a hole in his head. Minimum, you see skull. Also, you... Not skull. There's like skin that heals over it. No, they don't describe it as skin that has healed over. They describe it as a big hole in his head. Oh, well, holy shit. It's not like just blank space where his ear was, like skin that heals, like the way a muggle injury would heal. They describe it as a hole in his head. Well, damn. Like there is a big black gaping hole in George's head. You know, you'd think wizards would be very skilled at creating prosthetics. That's true. It's Except funny. apparently not, because Moody just has a fucking stump. Yeah, and... but Moody has his crazy eye. Yeah, that's true. Just come up. He should a... sew on an extendable ear. Yeah, simple. I mean, then he's got a super ear. Then he's another. Then he joins Moody among the ranks of cybernetically enhanced wizards, which would be badass. But anyway, missed ear upgrade opportunity. Harry gets another badass present from Hagrid. It's a moak skin. What is a moak? I don't know. I thought it said moleskin the whole just time I was reading. Just a nice notebook. Here, Harry, write down whatever horrible... Fucking bullet write, journal in yeah. here. <laughs> to do. Find horcruxes. List of hor- horcrux checklist. But the moleskin is super badass because you can because you can hide anything there and nobody but the owner can get it out. So Harry is basically... He's just getting a lot of power-ups for the rest of the adventure ahead. Also, we learn from Charlie Weasley that Norbert the dragon from book one is actually a female dragon. She's called Norberta. This actually happened in my family. We had a cat that we named Grace the Cat, but because we thought it was a girl, but it was actually a male cat. But cats don't fucking care. What so you name is. kept calling it Grace. Yeah, it's fine. Gracie cat. Cats have no conception of like the gender binary. Yeah. I mean, they kind of do. I mean, they do, but they don't. They don't like get the. They, they don't, don't have like gender norms. They yeah. have reproductive instincts that right. are sex based. I so think. So I, I don't. They don't really need to name her Norberta, but I guess they do. That's fine. Wizards are super into the binary. <laughs> Harry's birthday party is interrupted by the arrival of a bright silver weasel. It's Arthur's Patronus. Handy that Arthur Weasley's Patronus is a weasel. I yeah. Guess that I wonder if that's just a pun. Pun-based Patronus. I mean, it's not like Harry's Patronus is a pot. <laughs> or something particularly hairy. Or hairy, yeah. I guess a... Yeah, yeah, a stag's not that hairy. It has minimal... It's horny. No, it's more like, they're more like antlers. Antlers aren't horns. No. I don't know what the difference, though. <laughs> I'm not an animalologist. The Weasel Patronus speaks in Mr. Weasley's voice. It says the, he's coming back, but with the Minister of Magic. So everybody panics. Tonks and Lupin bail. Tonks, as she'll explain later. Oh, they're also at the party. Lupin's being a downer, as usual. Rufus Scrimgeour shows up with Arthur. He requests a private audience with Harry, Ron, and Hermione, much to the surprise of Ron and Hermione. In a tense meeting, he informs them that Dumbledore has remembered them in his will, but the Ministry, we learn, has been holding on to Dumbledore's possessions. 
to inspect them before they pass them on, although they can't hold on to them past 30 days because of, like, fucking magical escrow law or whatever. Hermione accuses Scringor of abusing the law, which was meant to prevent dark or cursed artifacts from being passed through families. To be fair, this could easily be Horcruxes, <laughs> which are dark and cursed objects. So there is no real reason to assume that Dumbledore is not passing disturbing and dangerous things to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Fair enough. I do not think that we should extend Dumbledore that particular courtesy. We have no evidence that these aren't fucked up items. Could be literally anything. Ron receives Dumbledore's Deluminator, which you might remember is the, like, the reverse cigarette lighter gizmo from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone that turns out all the street lamps. Ron receives it in the hope that he will remember me when he uses it. Hermione receives an ancient copy of Tales of Beetle the Bard written in runes. Dumbledore writes in the hope that she will find it entertaining and instructive. And Harry gets the snitch that he caught in his first Quidditch match at Hogwarts to remind him of the rewards of skill and perseverance. Scrimgeour questions them all about why Dumbledore passed them these particular objects. He's particularly interested in the snitch because they have flesh memories. Basically, snitches, no one touches a snitch when it's being made. The snitch maker, I don't know what you would call a fucking snitch maker, wears gloves and the snitch can identify the first person it touches, who touches it, which is used to determine the winner in disputed Quidditch games. So even wizards are hip to instant replay. <laughs> so Scrimgeour thinks something's hidden inside the snitch. Harry handles the snitch, but nothing happens. Also, Dumbledore leaves Harry the sword of Godric Gryffindor. But Scrimgeour says that wasn't Dumbledore's to pass on. It is a super valuable historical object that will remain at Hogwarts, which seems reasonable to me. But the trio are super pissed about that. Uh, Hermione points out that the sword chose Harry when he pulled it out of the sorting hat. It's a little bit like being like, oh, congratulations, Harry. You have inherited the Mona Lisa. Yeah, I know. Yeah, the fucking curator of the Smithsonian can't like will Lincoln's hat to somebody. You know? <laughs> but whatever. I guess it's not art, but it's an it's an artifact. Dude, it's the sword of to fucking the Godric Gryffindor. Yeah, it belongs in a museum. As Indiana Jones might say. Scrimgeour asks Harry why Dumbledore would have left him the sword of Gryffindor. Harry snaps back that maybe Dumbledore thought it would look nice on his wall. So, sassy Harry, making a comeback here. Scrimgeour loses his temper and tells Harry that he's not at school anymore. He pokes him in the chest with his wand, which burns a hole in his t-shirt. Love that moment. Scrimgeour says, you may wear that scar like a crown, Potter, but it is not up to a 17-year-old boy to tell me how to do my job. It's time you learned some respect. It's time you earned it, Harry retorts. It's a very good comeback. Don't read it as well as Jim Dale, but I wanted to call out that moment. Arthur and Molly burst in after hearing raised voices. Scrimgeour then tries to lower the temperature a bit. He says, look... I want the same thing as Dumbledore, and we should be working together. Harry says, well, I don't approve of your methods, Minister, and once again raises his scarred hand with the words, I must not tell lies, and Scrimgeour then limps away. Then everybody eats dinner! 
Afterward, the trio gather in the attic to discuss their inheritances. They puzzle over the meaning of Dumbledore's gift. Harry puts his mouth to the snitch, hoping it will open because, remember, this is the snitch he nearly swallowed when he caught it the first time. Hermione notices there's writing on it. It's Dumbledore's writing. The snitch says, I open at the close. Uh, they're flummoxed. They don't know what that means. Ron tells Hermione and Harry the tales of Beetle the Bard are children's folk tales. And uh, then they all go to bed, and Ron gets the lights with his Deluminator. So, I respect using your presents, like, immediately once they've been opened. I always do that. I already got to speed through the wedding, because I, there was just a lot of legal details to work through there. Uh, anyway, so the rest I will this, I will finish in one minute. Uh, <laughs> Harry takes Polyjuice Potion to disguise himself as a red-headed muggle boy from the neighboring village. They're going to call him Cousin Barney, and he's going to blend in with the rest of the, the Weasley relatives. Fred and George hook up with some Vila cousins. The trio meet... Xenophilius Lovegood, Luna's father, they live in a nearby village. As you might expect, he's weird as hell. He's wearing a pretty, he's wearing an odd necklace that looks like a triangular eye. Victor Crumb is also at the wedding at Fleur's invitation. The wedding is super nice. There are balloons that play music, and then at the end of the ceremony, like birds of paradise burst out of them and tinkling bells. So that's pretty cool. Very Instagrammable. <laughs> If wizards had Instagram, Wanstagram? No, that's not funny. The minister at Fleur and Bill's wedding is the same one who did Dumbledore's funeral. That guy gets around. Yeah. He's like the renting minister for like the entire wizarding community. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there, but we will discuss. Clearly, um, clearly wizards don't have the universal life church. They can't have friend George co-officiate. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be dope. During the reception, Ron asks Hermione to dance. Meanwhile, Crumb comes over to the table and quizzes. Harry disguises Barney about whether Ron and Hermione are together now. Barney's like, so I call him Barney or Harry? Whichever you want. Barry is like, sort of? Crumb complains to Barry about, I'm going to call him Barry because... I get it, it's a combo. And Aunt Muriel calls him Barry by accident. Uh, also, Aunt Muriel is storming around, being like just very drunk and belligerent. Ron's aunt, on his mother's side, uh, has just a lot of opinions about everyone's appearance. More about her in a moment. Crumb complains to Barry Potter about Xenophilius. He says Xenophilius is wearing Grindelwald's symbol, and that his grandfather was killed by Grindelwald. Uh, Grindelwald's symbol was also carved into a wall at Durmstrang, and some of the students, like, copied it into their books and clothes to, like, look all alt-right or whatever. <laughs> Harry speculates that maybe Xenophilius doesn't really get the significance of Grindelwald's sign because, you know, he's Xenophilius. He might think it's, like, a cross-section of uh, Crumplehorn Snorkak or something. Harry then suddenly remembers that Gre Gre that Gregorovich is the man who made Crumb's wand. He thinks back to the weighing of the wand ceremony. Crumb confirms. Crumb, we learn, was also one of the last to purchase a Gregorovich wand. Harry realizes that Voldemort must be searching for answers about Harry how Harry's wand was able to repulse Voldemort's borrowed wand. Crumb then asks Harry if Ginny was single. Barney is like, Barry, Barney, Harry is like... Definitely not. Super taken. 
wandering through the wedding, Harry then happens upon Elpheus Doge, who wrote the obituary of Dumbledore. Uh, Harry reveals that he's Harry Potter in disguise. Doge is delighted to meet Harry Potter. Harry asks him about the Rita Skeeter interview. Do Doge says, wow, don't believe it, fake news. Auntie Muriel barges into this discussion and says, Rita Skeeter's awesome. I can't wait for her biography of Dumbledore. She then talks about how there were a lot of funny rumors about Dumbledore before he became so respectable. She even speculates that he might have done away with his squib sister, Ariana. Harry didn't realize that Ariana was a scrib. Elpheus says, getting very defensive, Elpheus says it's all untrue and that Dumbledore was traumatized by the death of his sister, which is why he never talked about her. Muriel says that squibs were hushed up in the old days and usually sent to muggle schools, but that Ariana may have been imprisoned by her mother. Elpheus says, no, that's not true. Or her, She was simply in poor health. She was a shut-in. Uh, Muriel then says it was Aberforth who broke Dumbledore's nose in a coffin-side brawl at Ariana's funeral, blaming him for their sister's death, and that Dumbledore didn't even try to defend himself. Muriel says she heard all of this from her mother, who was good friends with Matilda Bagshot, who wrote the bup 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 motherfucking history of magic. She was also close with the Dumbledore family because they all lived in Godric's Hollow which, of course, is where Harry's parents lived and were killed by Voldemort. Harry is distressed that Dumbledore never mentioned this thing he had in common, and he wonders why. Also, Muriel says that Bathilda Bagshot, she thinks, is probably Rita Skeeter's source for her book. So Harry is feeling very drained and emotional at what he's just heard. He's lost in thought, and suddenly a large silver lynx lands in the middle of the wedding dance floor. It's Kingsley Shacklebolt's Patronus, and he speaks in Kingsley's voice, saying, The Ministry has fallen. Scrimgeour is dead. They are coming. So, that escalated quickly, and that's what happens in this week's chapters. Okay, we dunk on Ron Weasley a lot. These were pretty funny Ron chapters, I think. Yeah, he's pretty charming and delightful in this particular moment in the book. I agree. At first, I thought it was creepy as hell that he gave Harry this what seems to be like a pickup artist book about how to charm witches. Because, you know, as we have discussed at length, it seems like there's a lot of magical ways not to get consent uh, in various romantic pairings. Uh, and then Ron says, oh, it's not all wand work, you know? So I'm like, what kind of spells yeah, are... Yeah, what part of it is wand yeah, work? Yeah, what kind of spells are these? But then it seems... Mostly, like, it's just a book that says, oh, be nice to people and pay attention to what people are saying. Because all of a sudden, Ron is, like, not the world's biggest douchebag in these chapters. He's, like, paying attention to Hermione's feelings. He's complimenting on her on her skills. And the twins gave it to him. So they're not, like, louts. Y you know, they are popular with women, but they're never scamming on anybody. I guess that's true. At first I was kind of like, ugh, would Ron Weasley like be in the Manosphere? <laughs> but I think he's more clever than that. And I do think, however, that this is a really useless birthday present. <laughs> like, first of all, they're about to go off into the woods and definitely not meet any girls. Right. So I don't know who Ron thinks Harry is going to use these tricks on as they go to war. Yeah, because he definitely doesn't want him 
courting his sister. Courting's like such a weird old-fashioned word, but you know what I mean. Yeah, it's like the only person Harry is into, and Ron knows this, is Ginny Weasley. And is Harry going to go meet a new girlfriend while he looks for Horcruxes? Like, I don't understand what the application of this book is. It's actually kind of a nice present, but it's also not super useful at this particular moment in Harry's life. Right. And it seems like mostly an etiquette manual. It seems to have told him, be direct about your feelings, because he says, oh, I would have totally known how to break up with Lavender and start going out with Hermione. Although he doesn't say Hermione. That's true. He stops and trails off and says, well, anyway. He's got some work to do. But the other thing this proves is, all right, Ron Weasley reads one fucking book and it changes his life. (laughs) Think about... What would happen if Ron actually did his fucking homework? (laughs) God, Ron. So, but speaking of him not saying Hermione's name in that moment, they need to have a what are we conversation. Because they're all kind of schmoopy and they're dancing together at the wedding and he always has his arm around her. But they're not dating. They're not an item exactly. Even Harry dressed as Barney when Crumb is like, are they together, is like, I mean, it's complicated, like, kind of. Like, neither (laughs) of them's really single, but I doubt that they would, like, and it's this whole thing, and they just need to be direct and be like, okay, are we doing this? Maybe they have the same reservations that Harry does about continuing to pursue his relationship with Ginny. They know they have this big life-or-death quest in front of them and it I think be a distraction I think Ron's just a bad communicator all right well he's doing better he is he's doing better but Ron and Hermione need to have the talk they need to have the are we exclusive or are we seeing other people in the woods right talk but they're kind of sweet I mean you know I I actually they're no they're kind of yeah they're kind of sweet it's nice that they dance together at the wedding. Ron has definitely shown some personal growth. Yeah, because before when Crumb showed up, instead of asking Hermione to dance with him, he just would have like fumed and I don't know. Yeah, found some other girlfriend around. that he didn't actually like. I yeah, he's right. uh, he's shown some personal growth. It's nice that we know that he'll continue to be a level-headed, mature person throughout the rest of this book, and definitely not at all possessed by Lord Voldemort. Yeah. <laughs> We don't need to dwell here too much, but it remains dumb that Harry and Jenny had to break up. She took a step closer to him. So then I thought, I'd like you to have something to remember me by. You know, if you meet some Vila when you're off doing whatever you're doing. I think dating opportunities are going to be pretty thin on the ground, to be honest. There's the silver lining I've been looking for, she whispered. And then she was kissing him as she had never kissed him before, and Harry was kissing her back, and it was blissful oblivion, better than fire whiskey. She was the only real thing in the world, Ginny, the feel of her, one hand at her back and one in her long, sweet-smelling hair. Voldemort isn't out here asking people, oh, are they official, before he, like, tortures her. Right. Which, it's just... I get, I think it's more about Harry's need to shed attachments than an actual fear Mm -hmm. that Voldemort is only going to go after her if she's his official definite girlfriend. Lobo's not going to be like, oh, well, the Weasleys are off limits now. Definitely don't want to kill all of them. Yeah, but it's all Harry. It's all in Harry's head. And I guess I understand Harry not wanting to be romantically attached while he goes on this quest. Yeah, it's about him 
having the space to do what he needs to do. But it's really sad because they have great chemistry and they do this really nice kiss and I I feel for Ginny. I mean, I think Ginny is very mature and really gets it and gives him a lot of space. But it's clearly making her sad and giving her a lot of really complicated emotions to work through. So poor Ginny. Bummer. She's really funny and sassy in this scene where she's like, oh, I thought I'd give you something to remember me by. I like that. I know. It's sexy. Way to go her. So then we enter into this whole thing with the will and I want to reiterate that you all are probably going to have a lot of corrections for us because I don't remember what the fuck any of these objects are for. I vaguely remember the snitch and what, you know, at the very end and it opens and he's like dying or whatever the fuck. I don't remember why Ron gets the Deluminator at all. Like at all. Yeah. The Beetle Bard thing makes sense because it's the, yeah, it that. has the story of the Hallows in it. But this is all very hazy and the Deluminator is so... Like, I remember that Ron gets that, but why? I don't... What is this about? What is Dumbledore playing at? <laughs> I like, don't oh, understand. well, you know, I don't want to leave Ron out. Uh, what do I have lying around here? Oh, the Deluminator. Let's see what they make of this. You listeners can tell us what this is about if you want, but we also won't mind if you don't, because even though we tell you flagrantly that we are going to spoil this book, I actually kind of want to figure it out for myself, (laughs) because it's actually kind of exciting not really remembering the details here, because a lot of this is very mysterious. This plot is so Dumbledore. It's I'm going to give vague hints at my intentions there, and hope you interpret it correctly. One thing that is, I will say, I think one of the reasons this book is really hard to remember and one thing that I find really frustrating about it is there are so many different objects that we're supposed to be keeping track of all at once. It's kind of fucking infuriating. <laughs> like we have these special, like the snitch is really special and their fucking resurrection stone is going to reappear and we have the hallows and we have the horcruxes and it's just like it's too much shit to deal with it's just like we're carrying around all these fucking items all the time it's like being in a video game yeah. it's infuriating it's like legend of zelda I yeah mean, he's got like a legend of zelda style like mokeskin pouch that he's just like full of bullshit <laughs> throwing stuff into he's just like i got the lock-in and i got the fucking snitch and i just does <laughs> I all this stuff even connect is this are these threads gonna come together harry is kind of like i'm not sure <laughs> i'm gonna trust but verify i really like that they all three get something in the will that dumbledore is bringing in ron and hermione a little bit although it's sort of weird because he legit didn't really have a relationship with either of them. Yeah, he barely knows them. I mean, he has a pretty good sense of Hermione's personality, at least. And he knows the sort of Weasley deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's close with the parents, and he knows, obviously, he knows that he's aware of the relationship dynamics. Well, he knows that they'll be going with him. He's very clear on the fact that Harry won't be alone, and so he may as well give some help to Harry's companions. But who knows? Who knows what that help entails? We'll see, I guess. (laughs) So this is it for Rufus Scrimgeour, a complicated man. I like the character, Rufus Scrimgeour. I mean, like is probably the wrong word. I think he's a good character. Like I said, I like this moment where he taps Harry with the wand and it burns a hole in his shirt. This idea of, like, coursing with, like, rage. We've addressed this in the past, but 
it's funny that J.K. Rowling is kind of miss is kind of like a Twitter liberal, but these books are so suspicious of government. Like you'd think that getting rid of fudge would bring in somebody better, but it doesn't fix the problems. I don't know if it makes them worse. She but she does have a really deep skepticism for bureaucracy and the ability of a bureaucracy to successfully address problems Mm -hmm. which is very libertarian in a way so it her her politics that we sort of know via yeah mostly her social media presence and the politics of these books don't actually really line up very well I guess the sort of the moral side sort of does She's clearly relatively progressive in her view of like equality and, you know, rights of all people slash creatures to some degree, although she does have an enslaved race. But she is mistrustful of institutions in general in a way that's really fascinating. Like she doesn't trust the press. She doesn't trust the government. She doesn't seem to have a ton of faith in the academy. It's just... Or like all the faith in the academy because a bunch of students and their professors like fight the battle that ends this whole war plus harry potter yeah really but ends it. she's know. not she doesn't really think that institutions are that high functioning yeah hogwarts isn't super high functioning yeah but hogwarts is like the last bastion of against voldemort yeah that's true I still think... Weirdly, the Academy is like the thing she has the most faith in, which is kind of funny. Because right. I think anyone in academia takes sort of a dim view of at least not the role and purpose of... Learning. Acad- of learning, you know, and the imp- but um, maybe how it's run. Yeah, the structures of academia, at least in America, just as bad as the ways in which something like the press or the government are sort of low functioning yeah comp yeah and i don't actually i mean you know i believe in government generally or like the ability of a body politic to make the country better but jk rowling kind of doesn't it's very individual choices individual freedoms i mean i think in the u.s she would probably be like a democrat But she doesn't have a lot of the sort of, or doesn't espouse in these books a lot of the kind of democratic values of belief in a a system that works to help people. Yeah, so that to me is what's interesting about Scrimgeour, is Harry doesn't get this ally just because crappy fudge is out of the way. Harry never gets an ally in the ministry. Right. Harry is almost always in an antagonistic relationship with the wizarding government. And we never see a well-governed... I mean, until, I guess, Hermione is the minister of magic. But even then, Hermione makes a truly massive error as the minister of magic that almost ends the world. Right. So um, bureaucracy is seen as kind of ruinous, which I don't necessarily think she's wrong about. I just think it's really interesting to juxtapose that with probably, I think, how J.K. Rowling would express her own political alliances. Right. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely not 
like a Tory. Well, for example, we know very clearly that she's anti-Brexit. Right. And therefore pro-EU. And the EU and the European Union, I mean, the EU and the Ministry of Magic actually seem to have a fair amount in common in terms of being this, like, I mean... It's pretty complicated. It's pretty Byzantine from what I understand. I'm not... I'm not an expert at all in how the EU functions, but in terms of the levels and layers of bureaucracy and relative efficacy... Unless we've just swallowed Brexit propaganda. Well, no, I don't think... I don't think it's bad. I just don't think it's simple and clear cut right yeah in the same way that a lot of the ministry of magic seems i mean and she seems to have a really dim view of that the functioning of that kind of body and yet is still incredibly anti-brexit like very 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 vocally and clearly on the internet super anti-brexit which i agree with personally i don't i don't live there so i don't get to have like the strongest opinion but from everything i know i'm not a brexiteer so I'm not saying J.K. Rowling is wrong. I just think the government that she represents in these books seems pretty misaligned with what she has expressed in her personal life about what she thinks about government. Yeah. You go too far, shouted Scrimger, standing up. Harry jumped to his feet, too. Scrimger limped toward Harry and jabbed him hard in the chest with the point of his wand. It singed a hole in Harry's T-shirt like a lit cigarette. Oi! said Ron, jumping up and raising his own wand. But Harry said, No, do you want to give him an excuse to arrest us? Remembered you're not at school, have you? said Scrimger, breathing hard into Harry's face. Remembered that I am not Dumbledore, who forgave your insolence and insubordination. You may wear that scar like a crown, Potter, but it is not up to a seventeen-year-old boy to tell me how to do my job. It's time you learnt some respect. It's time you earned it, said Harry. I think it's interesting that Scrimgeour uses, describes Harry's scar as being worn like a crown. Because I think, so I don't think Scrimgeour is necessarily an effective or good minister for magic. But I think, I think the most generous reading of his actions is he doesn't think that these existential decisions about what happens to the like citizenry of the wizarding world should just be outsourced to private actors like Dumbledore and Harry Potter. I mean, I agree with that. And I do think that's the most generous reading of Scrimgeour and probably to some extent. But I also think that Scrimgeour wants to use Harry primarily as a tool of propaganda and doesn't actually seem to take much stock of as Harry as a person with agency right he wants to use harry as a figurehead right which i think is just as damaging an idea as harry single-handedly saving the world so it's not like he wants to like utilize harry's particular powers and skills for good yeah he wants harry to prop up an ill-functioning and nearly collapsed government i get that but i think you can i think scrimgeour's resentment of Dumbledore and and by extension Harry Potter makes some sense because it is Scrimgeour's job to protect the wizarding world. He's the I don't know how the magical government works, but it seems like he's the commander in chief 
essentially. It's interesting, by the way, that they have no military. Right. Speaking of commander well, they have the, I mean, they basically have like... A militarized state, police. The state police forces. But yeah. anyway, we can't get into that right now, but the Wizarding <laughs> World doesn't have like an army. You know, so, but Scrimgeour... It's a private army. Yeah, it's, he's, he, he has a fucking job. His job is to fight this war and Dumbledore in death and then Harry Potter are just like freelancing um scrimgeour at least has some like we are meant to believe some democratic accountability dumbledore has none and dumbledore has always passed over even entering like even entering the ministry for complicated reasons but also i think scrimgeour might suspect because dumbledore doesn't want to have accountability dumbledore kind of views himself as accountable to no one oh yeah dumbledore completely rejects accountability including accountability to harry himself right so through the perspective of harry potter scrimgeour's being paranoid and ineffective ineffective and is an impediment to his quest but you know seeing Scrimgeour has, like, kind of, if you squint, a legitimate perspective here. And also, I mean, Dumbledore is as powerful as Voldemort, we are meant to believe, or almost as powerful. It's a problem when wizards with... when really powerful wizards start to go their own way, we've seen. He's a former confederate of Grindelwald, even though he defeated him in a duel... If you just assume that Dumbledore is doing everything for the best, then Fudge and then later Scrimgeour's kind of suspicion and paranoia of Dumbledore makes no sense. If you've been kind of indoctrinated into the whole Dumbledore's amazing and can do no wrong thing. But as we learn in this book, and we learn this from Auntie Muriel, like Dumbledore, there are some shades of gray there. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And also, I mean, this is why the whole project of sort of one-to-one applying lessons from a story like Harry Potter to contemporary politics is dumb because chosen one narratives are inherently pretty authoritarian. Yeah. So we actually, in order to be on Harry's side, we have to like kind of reject a lot of the things that like outside of a narrative like this we sort of basically believe about how societies should function. We do this all the time, obviously. We make parallels between the contemporary sort of social and political world and these stories. But that completely breaks down because the central narrative of this story is that one person holds the key to saving the world, which is an incredibly undemocratic storyline just very basically so i mean it's not just one person you know ron and hermione are drafted into this but but it's it's essentially it's it's a chosen one narrative any like hero's journey narrative is not about democracy (laughs) not that (laughs) not that all stories have to like perfectly align with what we think is like the you know quote-unquote like right way of governing a society but it's really hard to apply the norms and mores of you know democracy for example in a perfect analogy in these books because Harry's quest is incredibly undemocratic and Scrimgeour is kind of identifying that in a 
fucked up way, and he's still not a yeah, I mean, great it's fu- guy. It's fucked up to say Harry wears a scar like a crown, you know? Like, Harry doesn't want... Harry doesn't consider it a badge of honor, you know? Well, he's- lots of... We've had... I mean, lots of monarchs are sort of... Not unwilling, but we have lots of stories of sort of, like, reluctant... We have lot... Not in history, but, like... In the sort of like Western canon, well, and, the you know, reluctant leader or monarch is like quite a trope, right? Well, it's also part of like you know politicians' personal myth making is often around their quote unquote reluctance to take power in right. some cult, you know. Like- and Harry is a deeply political figure in this world, and Scrimger does sort of identify that in a way that I think is canny. Yeah, but he wants to use Harry too. Yeah, like, and he's consolidating his own power, and he's trying to legitimize his own regime. So, his—he's not an innocent per se. I mean, who isn't? No one in power politics is like innocent, right? But he's uh, his motives aren't wholly pure. But yeah, I can see. I he's, can see why he is responding this way. He doesn't have zero point. Right. Yeah, I don't think Scrimgeour is just one hundred percent totally wrong and idiotic yeah he definitely like is seeing something real and is identifying some like real patterns and ways in which Dumbledore could be genuinely kind of dangerous yeah because like I mean the question is and the question this book kind of asks is what if Dumbledore's not a good guy well I think he is at the end of the day we I think can all agree that Dumbledore is good and was working from good purposes but I think that's complicated yeah one of the things that this book does really well is blow up the idea that you should be perfectly loyal to anyone kind of except yourself Hmm. like all of Harry's loyalties get called into question in a really interesting and important way and Scrimgeour wants Harry's unquestioning loyalty and he's mad that Harry's unquestioning loyalty goes elsewhere but the real lesson that Harry learns is that nobody deserves unquestioning loyalty. Should we pivot to something much more lighthearted? Yes. Let's talk about the wedding guests because this is a cast of characters. Dude. So first of all, this cousin Barney malarkey <laughs> is so transparent and doesn't work at all because nobody has ever seen this kid and all of a sudden he's best friends with Ron and Hermione and like sitting in the front row at this wedding. And Harry Potter's mysteriously And Harry Potter's absent. not there. It's yeah. like, this is obviously Harry Potter. Anybody with an ounce of sense knows that this is fucking Harry Potter. Barney's out here just expelling our missing people. I know, Barney. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Barney jumps into action when the Death Eaters show up. <laughs> so either Barney is this like badass dark wizard fighter that we've never heard of or this is obviously Harry Potter it doesn't seem I mean even Crumb is like it's weird that Victor Crumb doesn't sit down with Ron and Hermione and say like where's your best friend and world famous boy Harry Potter (laughs) also who is this like random chubby redhead that you've spent the entire night with who looks years younger than you because he's supposed to be like a kid right like a little kid something like that yeah overall not fooling anybody then we've got xenophilius lovegood who i mean he kind of is what you'd expect uh he's got the deathly hallows necklace 
It turns out that Xenophilius Lovegood is like that guy that insists that like the swastika is just an ancient Indian symbol of peace. <laughs> so I guess he has a connection with the Deathly Hallows outside of Grindelwald, but like don't wear that shit if you know that it's a symbol of like a genocidal dark wizard. Dude. <laughs> it's like not a great move. I get why Crumb is like, fuck that guy. You don't get to just reassign. I mean, it is. It's like all these, I mean, I feel like it, the swastika is like a good example of like, you don't get to take back that symbology. Just reappropriating. Zen- yeah. I don't know. If Z- Xenophilus is too wacky even for that. We're going to learn a lot more about his relationship with uh, the Deathly Hallows. And he's a complex guy, it turns out. I mm-hmm. mean, Xenophilus does not... I wouldn't say he covers himself in glory in these in books. In these books, in this last book, no. I but like that he's obsessed with gnomes. Although, again, he has wackadoodle ideas that are not borne out by, I guess, what we would conceive of as, like, magical science. What are, <laughs> He's more of a naturopath or whatever. Yeah. Are there vaccines in the Wizarding World? I can't get into that right now. Xenophilius is for sure an anti-vaxxer. Yeah, for sure. Do you think he sells, like, dietary supplements in the Quibbler, like Alex Jones style? Oh my god, wouldn't almost, that be funny? Almost certainly. Yeah, that sounds about right Just, to like, me. Just, like, vitamins to get swole or whatever. Um, whatever fucking wizards take. Probably something weirder than that. Definitely. Speaking of vitamins, it's fucking weird that the vitamin shop, it's called the vitamin shoppa. Yeah, like Old English. Like, it's some kind of old, like, they didn't have the vitamin shoppa in medieval England or whatever. No. It's not on Diagon Alley. Also, trying to relate yourself to, like, medieval medicine does not say... Yeah, it doesn't speak volumes for the efficacy of your products. It is totally weird. Anyway. Uh, Why is it S-H-O-P-P-E? Uh, I have no idea. Totally inscrutable. It's nice to see Victor Crumb again. Dude. He's a great character, and he provides some really useful exposition as well as some good moments of romantic tension with both Ron and Hermione and trying to scam on Ginny, which really <laughs> he peaks He didn't scam Harry. on Ginny, he asks. He very nicely asks. He's like, hey, is uh, Ginny over there? He feels it out before But before then he says this hilarious line of, what's the point of being an international Quidditch star if all the hot girls are taken? Yeah, well, you know. Which, Good question. Also, he has grown a stupid little beard, as Ron calls it. <laughs> well, hilarious. I think it's telling that the Vila cousins go off with Fred and George. By the way, Fred and George come through with this wedding. They are the most competent people in the Wizarding World. Their decorations are gorgeous. They should go into a side business of providing, like, event decor. Dude, that's clearly... Uh, a new line of business for Weasley's Wizard Weezes. Yeah. Definitely. They do a beautiful job. They do all, they enchant all these incredible magical objects to just do pretty shit. Okay, but Harry is thinking, because Harry's never been to a wedding before, he's like, oh, this is probably a lot more extra than a muggle wedding. Harry's wrong. Weddings? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem that much different. Weddings than a are wedding. pretty extra. You know? What do you think? wizards think marriage is well uh the wizard minister who's the same minister from dumbledore's funeral yeah first of all who the fuck who is, is this who guy the fuck is this guy he's never named we just know he's got tufted hair tufty the minister minister <laughs> tufty um I, I don't know what faith like what tradition is he from what faith tradition is he in uh 
is he is he like somebody high ranking in the wizarding world? He did Albus Dumbledore's funeral, right? And now he's at this random Weasley wedding. I Weasleys mean, aren't like rich. They're not rich, but they're an old and well-known wizarding family like they're part of a fairly small community of old wizarding families they're they're well known but i mean not is wealthy. this like the wizard archbishop of canterbury like yeah, i don't i don't get, i cannot tell if he's some just random renta minister or if he is some kind of like prominent and first of all what the fuck is the wizarding church as it were yeah like he's a minister of what i i have no idea he's not the Minister of Magic. There's already one of those, and it's a different kind of minister <laughs> altogether. I don't I, I don't know. Wizard, we know almost nothing about wizard spirituality. Uh, he does say bonded for life, so there is some sense of a holy sacrament. But what that entails, I... I have no idea. I wonder Are if they there's bonded a in spell. Magic? Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if they break the vows of marriage, something happens to them, like the magic does something. Right. Because you can make unbreakable oaths. That doesn't seem like what's happening here. But you'd think if you were really serious about marriage, you would take the unbreakable vow. Dude, like covenant marriage. Right. <laughs> this is a thing Alex and I learned when we got married in Arizona. Some states, including Arizona, have this thing called covenant marriage, which is basically extra, extra married. It's you choose a covenant marriage if you want to eliminate the possibility of a no-fault divorce. First of all, no-fault divorces are like really an achievement of feminism. Like we should definitely have no-fault divorces. But if you want to just say the only way we can get divorced is by these really small and fairly upsetting list of marital sins, as it were. You can do that in multiple states by getting covenant married. We did not get covenant married. We did not. You also can't get married if you are something called double cousins, <laughs> which means it's like a seven brides for seven brothers situation where if two siblings marry two siblings, their kids can't get married. The things you learn when you're getting a marriage license. That might actually be a problem in the wizarding world. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if they were some double cousin weddings. Um, yeah. Everybody's marrying each other's cousins in these books constantly. But I wonder, is there a magical bond that happens when two wizards get married? Wizards and witches or, you know, whatever. Uh... And then does, like, if you cheat, does your, like, dick fall off or something like that? I don't like, know. I mean, maybe they have, like, wizard magical prenups where they make different, like, spell agreements for different, you know, marital transgressions. Here's another thing, speaking of state-by-state state marriage laws. Auntie Muriel complains that Fleur is French, which, again, just, like, begs the question of why do wizards respect these muggle state and country lines yeah they don't even know what like cinderella is but I they know what be so france kind of is cloistered yeah i i just have a lot of trouble understanding what parts of muggle society wizards do and don't abide by because clearly they believe in like muggle nationalities right or sort of adhere to muggle nationalities yeah i i don't know okay final question about the wedding guests 
what the fuck does J.K. Rowling have against ants? <laughs> we have so many incredibly mean ants in these books. Aunt Petunia, Aunt Marge, now Auntie Muriel. I think we're even forgetting like one or two other evil aunts. I'm not sure. Yeah, she. somebody had a bad aunt experience uh, as a young person is my guess. Yeah, they are not beloved figures in these books. <laughs> um, I have great aunts. I don't, I, I don't relate to this at all. I love all my aunts. I think multiple of them might listen to this podcast. Oh. What up, Aunt Liza? I don't know why I'm saying aunt and aunt interchangeably. Which I... one is it? Anyway, aunts rule. Aunts rule. And J.K. Rowling does not think so. <laughs> so I do want to talk about Auntie Muriel because I actually love her because she is out here spilling the tea and also spilling the champagne all over everybody because she is wasted and 107 fucking years, years old. old. I like that she's like, move, I'm 107. Dude, she's earned it. She doesn't give a fuck anymore. No. So we have all these revelations, courtesy of Auntie Muriel, about Dumbledore's uh, youthhood. Youthhood? Youth. Youth. About Dumbledore's youth. She took another large gulp of champagne, belched, and then said, There's no need to look like a pair of stuffed frogs. Before he became so respected and respectable and all that tosh, there were some mighty funny rumours about Albus. Ill-informed sniping, said Doge, turning radish-coloured again. You would say that, Alpheus, cackled Auntie Muriel. I noticed how you skated over the sticky patches in that obituary of yours. I'm sorry you think so, said Doge, more coldly still. I assure you I was writing from the heart. Ah, we all know you worship Dumbledore. I dare say you'll still think he was a saint, even if it does turn out that he did away with his squib sister. Muriel! exclaimed Doge. This really underscores for Harry that things were not all what they seemed with Dumbledore and that he didn't know him very well at all. In fact, he knows almost nothing about this person who has now set him on this wild quest. So watching that doubt and kind of almost fear grow in Harry's mind is really interesting and important and shapes a lot of what happens to come right because his his quest for Dumbledore and his quest for defeating Voldemort are really bound up mm -hmm. in very important ways so this lays the groundwork for that uh, Elpheus Doge is not a particularly effective Dumbledore defender no he just kind of stammers and says basically like oh fake news that never happened a whole bunch yeah, he's not able to mount a compelling defense of Dumbledore besides Dumbledore's amazing, which you'd think it would be easy to mount a compelling defense of Dumbledore, Except given that, everything Dumbledore has accomplished. But Auntie Muriel destroys Elvius Doge, partly because it seems like a lot of these rumors are, if not true, then there is enough of a kernel of truth to them that he was not that he is not going to come out of this story looking good right one thing that I think this underscores for me is there is this tendency I think kind of widely in society as it were 
to kind of infantilize old people and make them really one-dimensional. So you have this Dumbledore, old Dumbledore is grandfatherly and wise and infallible and has done no wrong and trustworthy and deserving of absolute loyalty in this way that totally ignores the fact that Dumbledore has been alive for what seems like hundreds of years (laughs) and had a really complicated backstory. And so you do get this really early books Dumbledore is this kind of one-dimensional kind of old man character and I like complicating the old man by reminding the reader that old people have had whole lives that have colored how they are living now that were complicated and they have full rich entirely developed inner lives and they don't just exist to be founts of like advice auntie Mirella is a good uh vehicle for this message because uh she is continuing to be a very complicated person it seems like well into her hundreds expressing her whole personality now and forever she's no one's mascot the godric's hollow revelation i think is kind of the saddest moment here because harry was constantly yearning for connection with dumbledore and sort of a personal sense of the ways in which their paths might have crossed and it never occurred to Dumbledore to be like oh also I grew up in the place where your parents died we were like neighbors I understand Harry feeling really betrayed for not getting that piece of information yeah totally Dumbledore just that's the detail that really is the first like kind of chink in Dumbledore's armor I think for Harry that's the moment where Harry thinks to himself, like, whoa, there's more to this than. Well, and starts I to realize, like, Dumbledore kept things from him, very carefully siphoned information to him, right? Rather than tell him the whole story, like, ever. Yeah. And didn't give him everything he needed, kind of. So, I don't know. This isn't, we just, we get to learn a lot of really interesting things. Yeah. And I honestly, I mean, Auntie Muriel, I think it ends up being like somewhere in the middle, which of them is right, but she's very compelling in their case making here. Yeah, yeah. I like, um, it's just interesting to see any hagiography get complicated because here we have Elpheus who has so much invested in Dumbledore the legend, even though they were good friends. And then Muriel being like, no, there was more to it than that. Uh." I also just really relate to Muriel as a fellow full-fledged Rita Skeeter apologist. Yes. (laughs) Like, girl knows what she's doing. (laughs) Uh, Whatever. That's my least popular and sort of least closely held hot take. But I continue to think that Rita Skeeter is a truly fabulous character. And then... Ugh, the fucking Death Eaters show up. And this, I just have to say, totally proves my point from last episode that this was a dumb thing to do. Even though it's beautiful that they had a wedding and celebrated love and whatever, the entire Order of the Phoenix is in one place, wasted, completely defenseless, and easy to find. Yeah, there's a marquee. There's a tent that they're all in, and they're smashed. (laughs) It's just... This was a bad idea. Somebody should have been, like, on guard. Is there, like, a designated survivor somewhere? Is it, like, the State of the well, Union? Well, clearly Kingsley's not there. Right. Because he's the one that sends his um, 
Patronus. Mm -hmm. Kingsley once again, well, I guess the other one is just in the movie, so it's not really canon. But Kingsley gets one of the best lines in the series. Yes. Which I love because he's a great voice. They are coming. But, uh, yeah, obviously the Death Eaters were going to show up at this thing. This feels totally inevitable. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess it's nice that they got to have a party, but at what cost? At a really high cost. Yes. Frankly. Although, again, God, we don't fucking remember anything about this book, but I don't think anybody actually dies at the wedding. Do they even get to cut the cake at this point? Do they have a cake? I don't know. Probably. I hope so. They had a birthday cake already. Yeah. Cake two nights in a row. Hell yeah. Slipping it up. Wait, was Harry's birthday party just the rehearsal dinner? <laughs> Basically. Just double that? Just double up. <laughs> Um, who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is Victor Crumb for confronting Xenophilius Lovegood about the Deathly Hallows sign. Crumb is Antifa. Hot take. (laughs) Um, mine is Aunt Muriel because I just think somebody needs to be out here telling the other side of the story and I'm glad it's this drunk hundred-year-old. I just, I think she's great. I mean, she's like pretty rude throughout. I don't necessarily actually think she's a great person, but she really livens up a wedding. And you need someone like this at a wedding. If everything goes great, it's a boring wedding. (laughs) This week's episode is brought to you by The Put Outer, also known as The Deluminator. I feel like Mike from Potterless rants about has ranted about this on Twitter. I'm pretty sure Potterless podcast. Pretty sure I've seen that. But isn't it called the Put Outer in book one? Yeah, and it should be called the Put Outer. It's a better name. Yeah, much much more hilarious. What the fuck is this Deluminator thing all about? I don't know. It's very official. Uh, what a weird invention. Yeah, we're gonna have to get into this more when we have a better sense of why it's important like, and why Dumbledore didn't like patent and sell this. He was like. No, he just made one for himself. I guess. And it's like really, so it's really rare, but it doesn't seem like what it does is that complicated. It turns the fucking lights out. It's like a magic clapper. Can't it turn like the moon and shit out too? Like it can make it completely dark. Right. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows by J.K. Rowling. You can find us wherever you find podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, etc., etc., etc. If you happen to use a service that provides the opportunity to rate and review, please do that. We're also on social media at Quibbler Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We have a great newsletter. Lots of information about owls, and we also share the things other than Harry Potter that we are reading every week. So if you have ever thought you wanted book recommendations for us, I will say one great thing about it is we read incredibly different books. So depending on whose taste you think you're more aligned with, you will get very different recommendations (laughs) because we have other than Harry Potter and the... All Creatures Great and Small series by James Harriet. we have almost no reading tastes in common. I mean, I guess that's not true, but we- I read a lot of books. I read books you recommend to me. I know, because I have great taste. You do have great taste. <laughs> no, I I just can't keep up with the really long history books you read. You read uh, Stamped from the Beginning this Dude, year. Dude, Stamped from the Beginning was incredible, and it changed my life. And if you 
want to learn about the history of the development of racist and anti-racist thought in the United States, I recommend it with my entire heart. It actually changed my perspective on virtually everything in America. Yeah, Ibram X. Kendi stands from the beginning. Next time, we will be reading the chapters called A Place to Hide and Creature's Tale. See you then. Thanks, amigos. I couldn't think what to get you, she said. She took a step closer to him. So then I thought... Hey, there's no time for long goodbyes, but uh, here's something to remember me by, baby. And it was blissful oblivion, better than fire whiskey. The sword of Godric Gryffindor is an important historical artifact, and as such, belongs... It belongs to Harry, said Hermione hotly. It belongs in a museum! And with a slight shock, Harry saw the same small, tufty-haired wizard who had presided at Dumbledore's funeral, now standing in front of Bill and Fleur. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. In the front row, Mrs. Weasley and Madame Delacour were both sobbing quietly into scraps of lace. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. Trumpet-like sounds from the back of the marquee told everyone that Hagrid had taken out one of his own tablecloth-sized handkerchiefs. Then love, true love, will follow you forever. Skip to the end.